Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Today's sermon is going to be taken from select passages, and I won't even always have a passage to go along with the point because it's just kind of a general observation of things we find in the book of Acts. And these passages or these concepts are seasoned throughout the entire book. And when I do have passages, they're short descriptors that tell us something about the early church. And I've chosen five characteristics inspired in part by some quotes I found from in one of the commentaries from one of the commentators that I am studying in preparation for this. And I'm going to include under each point I make some of the bulleted statements, some of the comments that this commentator made in trying to help us to see this is what the early church did and how does that speak to what today's church ought to expect to do or be doing. I don't know if all of that makes any sense or not, but I think it will as I unfold this sermon. I'm going to start with the first bulleted point I call community. It's just a broad term that speaks about the community as it relates to the the, uh, church in the book of Acts and community as it should relate to us today. The scripture I've chosen to highlight this is in the fourth chapter of Acts, toward the end of the chapter, starting with verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. This is incredible what the early church was doing. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Do you see how powerfully the ministry of Jesus got a hold of these converts? You see how life-changing their experience was in realizing that he really was the Messiah. He was risen from the dead. They beheld him as he uh, ascended into heaven. And this changed their life dramatically. And Luke includes in this this fascinating bit of information where he says, folks, To understand how deeply these people were impacted by Jesus and by the commission to ministry, some of them sold houses and land and distributed it among others who had nothing. You know, we don't see Christ impacting lives to that degree very often this day and age. 
We don't see people being so impacted by Christ that they sell their house, they don't even sell their car, they don't even sell their video games. They don't sell anything. They don't give anything. They don't give much of anything up because I think they're approaching Christ. They're approaching Christianity with a totally different concept. The concept might be something like, there's something here for me to benefit from, and I'm going to get all I can get from. What that benefit might be might be nothing more than, I think if I dabble in this, maybe I will have heaven to gain when I die. Maybe I will find forgiveness for my sins, but maybe they're not considering the other side of this, and that is to follow Jesus, is to accept a great challenge from him like he did to his disciples. You're going to follow me. You have to understand something. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't have a place to sleep. You ready to follow that kind of a lifestyle? To follow me means that you're going to have to pick up a cross like I'm carrying a cross and follow me, and a cross is not an easy thing. So a lot of difficult challenges to following Jesus. I'm not sure everybody today understands that aspect of attaching themselves to Jesus. A lot of them just attach themselves to Jesus because there's something attractive about the church they attend or the positive confession message that is being preached, and they're enchanted by that and they join themselves to it, man, I can benefit from this. But you know, following Jesus, those early disciples didn't do that for personal benefit. They did it as a sacrifice for a greater cause, for the cause of God's kingdom and spreading that news. So there was a community that happened here because these people were so dramatically impacted by this story of the resurrection. We didn't have that happen in our day and age. So it hasn't really set our society and our culture aflame like it did theirs. I mean, just imagine if today this would have happened with our technology of the news, the media that we have, and somebody who had been so recognized by the world and so controversial, loved by many and hated by many, and finally crucified on false charges, and three days later rising from the dead and showing himself in proof to the world. Just think, wow, that would shake our world today. That's what it did to their world. People so impacted by it that they decided that some of the things they have they didn't need because somebody else has need. You know, it's interesting when you, when you look at the broad spectrum of Christianity today, do you realize that out of all the people who profess to be Christians, only about 4% tithe? Can, can you get your brain around this? Can you put that in juxtaposition against this statement where people were so revolutionized by their experience with Christ that they sold what they had and distributed it to the massive numbers of people today who call themselves Christians who don't even donate to the cause of Christianity. I, I, I'm really concerned about where Christianity is today. We have flip-flopped from what happened to the early Christians. These people formed a community. If we were to use a modern term, 
they formed a commune. And in that sense, I do not believe that scripture is being normative here where it's saying that we ought to sell our houses, we ought to sell our lands, we ought to come and deposit it at the church, and we ought to distribute among those that don't have. And I'll tell you, I have encountered some people sometimes who have not been very good stewards of their money, but they got so excited because of uh, their new relationship with Christ that I've seen some people bring some large sums of money in that I as a pastor had to have the responsibility, be responsible enough to say, I really appreciate your generosity. I really appreciate your heart. But I really don't think this is the thing to do right now. <laughs> Would you just consider, you know, not, I, I had, I mean, for instance, I know this sounds weird to you. A preacher that won't take money, here I am. <laughs> I mean, I had a lady come in that we had a, a Christian school in California and it was struggling. Uh, for those of you, maybe that didn't make sense. I was pastoring in California. I wasn't here and had a Christian school in California. I was pastoring in California. <laughs> Our church had a Christian school. Okay, maybe that makes more sense. Don't like rumors to get started, you know. And that pastor, he's got schools all over the world. <laughs> Anyway, we had, a, we had a Christian school, and it was, it was a case of the tail wagging the dog. It was bleeding the church dry. I could tell you a lot about it. I don't want to get off on that. But anyway, we were financially, we were in dire straits. And some lady had come into a, some sort of a little small inheritance. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what the, the fund was, uh, maybe a settlement in her life, came into a few thousand dollars. And she came in and she put $5,000 down on my desk, said, I want to donate this to the school. Now, you have to understand, this was a school that was going to go under. All this did was delayed the going under because the, 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 the infrastructure of the school was wrong. There were a lot of problems with it. And I could have taken the $5,000 and I could have delayed the closing by months or a year or two years or whatever, and then it would have been gone. Her money would have been gone. The school would have been gone. I, I just, I said, you can't do this. I, in good conscience, could not take that from her. See, you know, I'm not saying that whenever we're reading this, that the Bible says, in order for you to be a good Christian, you need to go sell your house, and you need to go sell your land. Unless you do that, you don't add up to being a Christian like they were. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this. There was something about Christ revolutionizing their lives where the things that they owned became less important to them than they previously were. And when that happens, often people begin to turn more of their energy and their interest into the work of the kingdom than they previously did into their own entertainment. That's what this scripture at the bare minimum speaks to us. is for people who at one time just manage their family budget just enough to, to, to get by and do what they wanted to do and pay their bills and have a little extra money to entertain themselves and eat out a little bit and, and buy a toy once in a while. Suddenly, when they get saved, they realize, you know, the Holy Spirit is convicting me that I have an obligation to be able to bring part of my blessings back to God. And that means we're going to have to change our lifestyle. 
We're not going to buy all the toys we used to buy. We're not going to entertain ourselves with everything that we want to entertain ourselves with. We're going to slice off what rightfully belongs to God. That's a lifestyle change because Christ has impacted them like that. This, this thing about community, this thing about caring about the needy, this thing about others don't have anything, and I've got more than I need. Now, let me read the quotes that go along with this, this uh, topic I've chosen. I, I had to organize his quotes because they were random, but I put them into categories. I hope they apply to the heading I've given us. Under community, here's the first quote. He says, to a society where individualism reigns. And that's the society, we are living in a society of individualism. Those of you who like to listen to Rush Limbaugh, you've heard him talk about rugged individualism. And he makes it sound like something that is just almost biblical. Rugged individualism. That's what we were founded on America, rugged individualism. I'm not making a commentary about Rush Limbaugh. I'm trying to say here is a term that has been thrown out there almost to make it sound spiritual to us. But we have become a a culture, a society that believes in rugged individualism. But when you look at the Bible, that's not really what the Bible teaches. We're not teaching that we are just individuals that, that we don't need each other. Biblically, we are a community. Biblically, we care about our brothers and sisters. Biblically, we cannot ignore that somebody has nothing while you have something. And I know the hearts of many of you people here, and you're the kind of people, just to use a term, you would give the shirt off your back for somebody. I know you. I know what kind you are. You know why? Because you, you understand what it means to be a Christian and live by Christian principles. You care about those that have little, though you have little yourself, so you give a little bit. Now you both got a little because they had nothing and you had something. You understand there are people like that. But I'm not sure in the broad scope of Christianity here in the United States, that concept of community is really being deeply embedded in American form of Christianity. Let me finish this. To a society where individualism reigns and where the church also seems to have adopted a style of community life that guards the privacy of the individual. Now, this is kind of deep, so you've got to ponder on this for a minute. But don't ponder for so long you don't hear what I'm saying. To that society, to that church is kind of bought into that guarding the privacy of the individual. The early church presents a radical community where the members held all things in common. And I can say this, bottom line, what they did there what we are doing today doesn't resemble a whole lot about the kind of community they envisioned was necessary for carrying on the work of God. We are very private people. Unfortunately, we're very individual people. Unfortunately. And there are times when I I am deeply impressed with the community-mindedness of our congregation, that we work together, we have common goals. My goodness, in the 12 years that I have pastored here and what we have to work with as a congregation, what we've been able to accomplish testifies about this, this concept of community that we believe in. But I don't see that in all of Christianity in America. We become individualistic. The second thing that he has to say concerning community is to a society where selfishness is sometimes admired and each one is left to fend for himself or herself. Acts presents a group of Christians who are so committed to Christ and the cause of the gospel that were willing to sacrifice their desires for the good of others. Now, this was a tight-knit sense of community. It was an interesting dynamic that developed 
It, it, just, it just happened. They didn't plan this. It just, it, the, the situation dictated they do something to be able to keep that seed of, of evangelism alive. The city was revolutionized by converts. And they had to do something and do something now because they couldn't allow this opportunity for all these converts just to go by the wayside. Remember the parable of the sower where some seed fell on uh, stony ground, some fell among weeds, some fell on hard pan, and, and just a little bit of fell on good soil. It's kind of the, the way they were thinking, we've got an opportunity here. We can't let this seed go to waste and not germinate. We've got to do something. They cared about the number of converts that were coming in. They had to do something rapidly to be able to disciple them and care for them. That drew them into this, this commune, so to speak. Now, when I say commune, let me stop once again and do the normative informative thing. Would it really be something that God wants us to do to everybody go out and sell your houses and sell your property and let's just come down here and convert this place, this property. Got 16 acres here. Let's just convert it into a big commune and let's just live here. Can you see where that's going? Eventually, somebody's going to have to go out and work. <laughs> so the concept of commune is not something that God was intending, or uh, as Luke recorded this, it was not something that he was inferring. God intends us to just live in a commune. Now, communes do exist. They're usually cultic. We, we lived in, a, in Bernie, California, where just up the road for us was a commune. Uh, I... I, I I'm getting brain problems as I get older, and I cannot remember the name of this particular commune, but it was up in uh, Canby, California. And they were weird. They, they were established under the guise of operating under Christianity, but there, there was a lot of scandal going on with that. Well, the man who ran the commune who operated him and his wife together. She ended up proving to be probably the more powerful of the two. They ran it together, but there is strong evidence she ran him. So he showed up at my church one Sunday. And I getting acquainted with this somewhat peculiar acting, peculiar looking man. And I decided uh, it was... It, it was um, some holiday. I can't remember what it was. And here he was. He'd been to our church a couple times, and I can't quite get a handle on who he is because he's not forthcoming with a lot of information. So I said, won't you come and join us for our meal? I think it was Thanksgiving, perhaps. And he did, uh, which incidentally, over the course of our ministry, frustrated our kids terribly. Every time we had a meal, we had guests there, and our kids were getting to the point, Dad, can't we just have family one day? <laughs> just family! We always had these people come and join us. So he came, and he joined us. And I said, would you care to bless the food? He said the most beautiful, tender, humble prayer. It just touched me deeply. Well, as it turned out, 
he had escaped the commune. He was trying to get out of it. He was on the run. His wife left behind. She's going to run the place. There were some accusations uh, circulating around about him, but something didn't set with him quite right. He was on the run. So, you know, communes happen. God doesn't expect the church to become a commune, but God certainly expects the church to be a community. God expects the church to care about those in need. I don't know how many times in my ministry my wife and I have just put money into the hands of people that we know that are struggling because, you know, when we've been blessed, we, we've had money pressed into our hands I don't know how many times in our life. And what a wonderful feeling it is to be able to say, I can do that for somebody else because I know how good I felt and it feels good to be able to do that for somebody else. And if you have never pressed money into the hand of somebody else that needs it, you don't know how good that feels. I challenge you to try that. I challenge you to be aware of the needs around you. We love doing that. I've, I've seen members of my church out shopping in the grocery store, and I know that they're struggling to figure out what they can and cannot buy. I have bought that for them. Now, don't, don't get any ideas. Just because you're going to fill your basket and run around the store till I show up doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to buy your basket full of food. <laughs> I have to feel led. <laughs> and you have probably done things like these too. What a thrill when you're standing there trying to pay for your food and the card won't the card won't go through for that person in front of you and they're trying to figure out what am I going to do now? Man, I just swipe the card. Here, I've got it. You, you can't do that. That's $30. Don't worry about it. Well, give me your address. I want to send you something back. I'm not asking for anything back. They were in a predicament. I could see what they had they were buying was just staples, just necessities. They weren't wasting this on garbage. They were trying to get this. For some reason, the car wouldn't go through. It was probably insufficient funds for $30 worth of grocery. Just swipe it. And then see them standing there in tears. I don't know how to thank you. I see you already have. Be blessed. Go. Just the joy of understanding when the others have needs. You can meet that need. That's a part of what the early church was all about, sensitivity to others. I wonder if we're willing to put our own private and personal pursuits on hold and unite together with all of our brothers and sisters for the cause of the kingdom like they did then. I wonder if we're willing to do that. We, we have fundraisers from time to time for different projects and we're getting ready to have another fundraiser for this remodel and for a few other projects we've got around here and we're going we're gonna to rely on people being able to give to that and we're going to we're going to promote that you know what it means to give sacrificially anybody can sit down and say I've got enough in my budget to give a couple dollars anybody can do that but sacrificial gets to the point where somebody says you know I was planning on buying something I really don't need and I can forego that because I am willing to sacrifice for the cause you say, why should I do that? Why does the church need the money? We don't need your money like that. You need that because you need that kind of relationship with God where you are serious enough to show him, I will put my own needs aside because I care about your work that much. 
And that draws you closer to God than you've ever been before when you're willing to have that kind of relationship with him. It's not about me needing the money, not about the church needing the money, it's about you needing a relationship with you will sacrifice because after all, Jesus gave it all. What are you giving? We give out of our abundance and, and we've done well giving our, out of our abundance. I don't know how many people give in, with much personal discomfort in their giving, but some do. Many Americans have more vehicles than bare necessity demands and more house than they can really live in and enough spare income to finance everything they, they want to do, fine dining, vacations, recreation. People in third world countries can't even find clean drinking water, but we've got more than we need. I move to point number two, and I've got a five-point sermon, and in case you're worried, there's going to be a long one. I'm dividing this sermon in half. I decided I'm going to preach as long as I care to preach, and as long as you're engaged and I'm going to quit, I'm going to finish this next Sunday. So don't worry. We're going to be done here in a minute. Point number two. Objective, exclusive, absolute truth. This has to do with regarding the early church as compared to what are we doing with objective, exclusive, absolute truth today. Let me read the paragraphs by the commentator. Two paragraphs, two bullet points. Number one, to a society where pluralism defines truth as something subjective and personal. I'm gonna unpack that for you in a minute, so don't, don't get confused. To a society where pluralism defines truth as something subjective and personal, Acts presents a church that based its life on certain objective facts about God and Christ. Facts that were not only personally true, but also universally valid and therefore had to be presented to the entire world. The second paragraph. To a society that denies absolute truth and therefore shuns apologetics. A key word, we'll study that in a minute. And persuasion in evangelism in favor of dialogue. Yeah, can we dialogue about this? Acts presents a church that persuaded people until they, were, until they were convinced of the truth of the gospel instead of aiming at mutual enrichment as the main aim of interreligious encounter as many do today the early church proclaimed Christ as supreme Lord with conversion in view now those two paragraphs together let me break them down for you the first one talking about the ills and the evils of pluralism Pluralism basically just meaning that whatever you believe is, there's a place for it. I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe and everybody believes something, but that's okay because as long as you do believe something and that is the spirit of the age we're living in that he is saying that spirit is trying to creep into the church and he said that doesn't look anything like the New Testament church. The New Testament church realized and believed there was objective truth in the story of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. And that couldn't be compromised just to accomplish the whole world that wants to everybody have their own religion. The early church wouldn't stand for that. They weren't content to say we have found Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. He has brought great peace and contentment. But whatever you have found, may God bless you too. They were so fired up about the objective truth that they had to take their truth and take it to the world and argue until they had convinced somebody else of the truth. That doesn't go over well 
in our culture today. Our culture wants to drive you back and so you have no business imposing your personal beliefs on somebody else. After all, they have their religion. Their religion is just as important to them as yours is to you. The modern church rejects Jesus Christ as, and his claim as being the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only way to the Father. They reject that. That's arrogant to them. That's exclusive to them. They don't like that. And the church is battling against this trend today. What do we do with absolute truth when the world rejects absolute truth? And thinks there's many paths to God. What do you do when you believe that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life? When Jesus said, I am the door. Not one of many doors, I'm the door. No man comes unto the Father except through me. What do you do with that? That's a bold stance to take in this age of pluralism. And so his second statement refers to a society today that shuns apologetics. I'm going to deal with apologetics in a minute. I'll save that for the next point. Our nation was founded on a principle of freedom of religion. There was a presumption among the founding fathers that there would be diversity in worship. And there was presumption that that diversity was going to stay within certain reasonable boundaries. For instance, the founding fathers in promoting uh, diversity of religion, freedom of religion, freedom to worship as you want to worship, did not envision being a haven for a Satanist cult that makes human sacrifices. They did not envision that as being a part of the freedom of worship. There were boundaries to that. They felt like people believe that there is a God and, and they're going to worship God and serve them in their own way and therefore the government did not have a right to establish this as the only way you would be able to worship God. So they said you worship in your own way. But they didn't intend to embrace uh, dangerous and false religions. They intended to preserve and honor and respect God as we understood him and the way we tend to worship him. So there was, there was a, a religious foundation in the founding of our country. Uh, but the, what happened is the freedom of religion cultivated a culture of pluralism because we allowed freedom of religion, then begin to get into a pluralistic society. And a pluralistic society began to encroach on the exclusive message of Jesus Christ. You're not being fair. There's a lot of people, a lot of different religions, and you just can't go around claiming yours is the only right religion. But see, the, here's the problem. We, we evangelize strictly because we believe we have the message of salvation. If we believed everybody else was able to find salvation in God through any other form, we wouldn't aggressively evangelize. We wouldn't send missionaries into foreign countries to take this message at the risk of the peril of their own life. Do you realize just this past week that there was a terrorist attack on a church in Africa and uh, terrorists breaking into an assembly of God church down there and murdering people in the church. I, I think the pastor 
was murdered. Many of the congregants were murdered. And if you don't know this, it's because the news media doesn't care if Christians get murdered. It's not news. Do you realize that fully 80% of all victims of religious persecution are Christians? Do you realize Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world? But did the news media tell you that? They're they're always wanting to do a news coverage of these little minority groups or these other groups. And I don't necessarily call Islam a minority group. They're about 1.7 billion and Christianity is about 2.1 billion. And they have every intent of taking over that top shelf. But any persecution that goes on there, any conflict, that's news. But 80% of all religious persecutions are Christians. Most persecuted religion in the world, it's not news. But why is Christianity so persecuted? Because we preach a message that is offensive to the world. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And that angers people. Because we risk our lives to go where we probably will lose some missionaries. We will lose some witnesses. Because they go where people don't believe that. And they go in and they tell them like Paul went into Mars Hill. And said I see all these religions around here. But I'm here to proclaim to you only one truth. The unknown God. People don't like that message. So our nation founded on these religious principles that developed into a culture of pluralism that is at the, uh, has developed into being intolerant of the uh, exclusiveness of Christianity and the claim that we have objective truth, the only truth. And the problem gets worse than that because it's not just a problem in our nation. The problem gets worse when the church no longer holds that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I just watched an interview, a radio interview between Rob Bell. And many of you don't know who Rob Bell is, but he has been a popular name in the past 10 years in Christianity having written a number of wildly popular books. And one of the last books he wrote before he went apostate was Love Wins. And that was the beginning of his apostasy because he began to believe that uh, the, really there, there is no hell. He began to believe that uh, homosexuality is not a sin. Uh, you know, he, he reduces this down to what it really all about is just all you have to do is just love somebody. And if you love somebody, it's pure. And so he took these stances that were contrary to traditional uh, historical Christianity and he became uh, apostate. So he's having a debate with another uh, theologian there. And he was throwing a, a lot of heretical things out in this debate that was not biblically based, it was emotionally based. And, and saying, after all, who's to say that we have objective truth anyway? You know, this is somebody coming from a Christian background, a, a, a up-and-coming pastor, one of the most popular Christian book writers at one short period of time, and suddenly it's just like everybody's okay as long as you're just nice one to another. That's really the bottom line. We just got to get along. We just got to love one another. And, and if that's what we, we do, we're all going to be fine, which flies in the face of Jesus saying, I'm the way to the Father. That's objective truth. That's an exclusiveness that says when you stand before God, God's not going to test you on how nice you've been. 
It's going to be totally on one criteria. What did you do with my son, Jesus? You were presented with the facts. What did you do with him? That will be the case and the basis upon which we are all judged. The early church never compromised their message for their, they were in a pluralistic society and they couldn't compromise their message for that society. They never compromised the truth of their message and it cost them dearly at times. I'm going to stop there. I don't believe I want to carry on to point number three even though I'm really excited to get to it. I will deal with apologetics in that one. But I want to stop at this point because you see a little bit of when I read the book of Acts, how it describes the early church, and we compare what we are today, I think we need some serious consideration have we strayed from what God really intended us to be. More on this next Sunday. Would you bow your heads?